morning, church. My name is Janisha Brown. This morning's reading is from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Uh, with that in mind, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that you gather us together in your presence uh, to love us and to lead us into what's true. Um, but that often uh, where you lead us is exactly where we don't want to go. Um, so we pray this morning that your spirit would come and uh, give us the courage uh, necessary to follow your instructions. We ask that your spirit of truth would come and renew our hearts and transform our minds by your word, uh, that we might grow in grace. And we thank you for your leadership. Uh, we ask now uh, that we would follow in your footsteps as you take us where you want us to go. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, first, let me just say how excited uh, Holly and I are to, here to be with you um, because uh, Christ Central Church has always been one of our favorite places to be. Uh, we love to worship with you. We love to see what God is doing in your midst. Howard and Kelly are some of our uh, longest friends uh, here in Charlotte, and we are so grateful that you're giving them a sabbatical, uh, something that we uh, know that we need. Hope has given us uh, two already, and uh, we're actually looking forward to our third in 2022. Um, but it's such a gift, and I'm so proud of you for the ways you sacrifice uh, to make that possible for them. Um, well, uh, today we're going to look at uh, Jesus's leading his disciples into a storm from Mark chapter 6. Um, and as we do, uh, I don't know what uh, this past year has been like for you, but for Holly and I, it's been the hardest year of our lives. Um, if you were with us uh, for the Good Friday service, then you may recall that um, Holly lost her mom uh, in April of last year. Uh, we lost our cat of 16 years in May. Uh, then, uh, shortly after that, our daughter and her fiancé had to move in with us. Uh, we had to replan her entire wedding and move it to a different state in three weeks. Then her best man uh, tested positive for COVID the day after the wedding, and we had to quarantine. Thankfully, it didn't spread uh, very far. Uh, but shortly after that, um, we lost a good friend. Uh, to a pulmonary embolism. I was actually called by his wife to his house as he fell uh, and was there when he died. Uh, I did his funeral. Then the next week, uh, my mom called, and my dad was dying of ALS. I went down there, and he passed away. And 
was in his funeral. And then we came back and we had Mo Holly's mom's memorial service that we had delayed uh, for a while. Um, and at the service, uh, one of the family members uh, tested positive for COVID the day after the memorial service. And that one, Holly got. Holly actually got COVID uh, there. And, um, and so it was just a hard year by itself. But in the face of all that, interestingly enough, um, one of the hardest things about the year for me was uh, when Jesus called me to begin to speak into and to lead hope into how to respond to the death of George Floyd, uh, how to respond to uh, the racial tensions of last year's politics, um, how to kind of recognize and respond to the deceptions of kind of the QAnon conspiracy theories and uh, things like that. And so as I began to kind of speak into that, um, sometimes I got it right, sometimes I got it wrong, but the thing that was hard uh, for us is just how much pushback we got in the face of that uh, from people that we had really loved uh, and pastored for a very long time, um, people who decided they could no longer trust um, our leadership or listen uh, to us or, or to believe uh, the things that we were telling them were true. Um, and that was heartbreaking because what it meant is as a pastor, at different points I had to kind of decide, was I going to love this person and speak the truth in love to them as I understood it, knowing that it might cost me my relationship with them? Was I willing to endure the storm of actually obeying Jesus' command to lead them? Uh, now, here's the reason I bring this up, because in our passage today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a close look at what goes on in our hearts when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, specifically because we followed God's directions. Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, a little background information might be helpful as we enter into our passage today. Uh, Jesus' disciples are really, really excited about being with him. Uh, they haven't been with him for weeks because they've been out doing ministry in neighboring towns, and they had gotten together with him, and Jesus wanted them uh, to get away for a retreat together to kind of recover, uh, to pray, and uh, to celebrate what God had done in the midst of them. But in his efforts to pull them away for a retreat, the crowds of people that they had ministered to followed them around the Sea of Galilee, and as they tried to enter into their retreat, it turns out that 5,000 people had gotten there ahead of them, and so they weren't able to get time away to recoup and relax. Instead, Jesus had supernaturally used them uh, to feed 5,000 people, right, using uh, uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. And uh, that's where our passage picks up today. Uh, Jesus is kind of rebooting his plan to go on a retreat with them. And this is what we read in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. It says this, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, that may sound exciting until you understand exactly what Jesus is commanding them to do. Uh, Jesus' unappealing instruction is that they get in a boat and start rowing five miles across the Sea of Galilee at night after a full day of miraculous ministry. Uh, not exactly what I would consider to be the most restful retreat. 
Um, can you imagine what's going through their heads? I, I suspect they're thinking things like, come on, Jesus, we haven't seen you for weeks. Don't you want to hear about how God has used us in the lives of all these people? Don't you want to spend time with us? Do we really have to row across the lake in the middle of the night so that you can have your own alone time with the Lord? Um, why can't we stay with you here until the morning? Uh, in fact, Mark kind of insinuates that these very objections came up because Mark says Jesus made them go. Uh, the Greek word that is translated made there is the word anakadzo, which means to force or compel. And so what Mark is essentially saying is that the disciples were forced by Jesus to get in the boat and to cross the Sea of Galilee at night against their better judgment. Now, to their credit, they obey his command, but, but then what happens? Well, verse 46 tells us, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And so what we see in our passage today is that as they obeyed Jesus, their lives got worse. It's not bad enough that they weren't getting any rest. It's not bad enough that they weren't getting to spend time with Jesus. It's not bad enough that they were forced to row across the Sea of Galilee at night. Now a storm comes up and they're having to expend all of their energy to try and fulfill Jesus' command. Now what do you think was going through their minds at that moment? I think they're thinking things like, I knew we shouldn't have tried to cross this thing at night. Why do we listen to him? I mean, he's, he's a good teacher, but he's a carpenter, and we're professional fishermen. If I go overboard here at night, they will never find me, and I will drown for sure. And at that moment, the unthinkable happens. Verse 48 he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass them by. The phrase translated here, very early in the morning, literally says that Jesus came walking toward them in the fourth watch of the night, which means 3 a.m., and so what appears to have happened is that Jesus compelled them to cross the Sea of Galilee at 8 or 9 p.m. And then he went up to pray, and he saw them straining against the weather sometime later, but did not start moving their direction until 3 in the morning. Now, that would be disappointing in and of itself, but Mark actually tells us that when he got there, he wanted to pass them by. Do what? Pass them by? Have you ever felt like Jesus is doing that to you? That he has given you instructions that have made your life harder, that he has the power clearly to improve your situation, the situation that you're in because you obeyed him, and yet he is clearly not doing it on purpose. I think you, can, you have, 
Um, Each of us, if we think about it, can remember times when God has worked powerfully to rescue and redeem us. But thinking about those times can be difficult because it also makes us painfully aware that there are other times, maybe even times like right now, that he could rescue us, but he chooses not to do it. What's worse, you can even think of situations that God has sent you into that have caused your suffering to radically increase. Maybe you started a ministry that failed. Maybe you took a job after praying long and hard only to find yourself in a very difficult situation. Or maybe you lost that job. Maybe you moved to Charlotte looking for friends and you find yourself alone in your apartment in the middle of COVID. Maybe you thought that you married your soulmate, but you woke up to the fact that they're a sinner. What do you do when that happens? Well, they gave in to their fears. And when they did, they started misperceiving God. Verse 48, he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, why were they terrified? Well, obviously, because they were seeing the impossible. They were seeing a human being walking on the water in the middle of the storm in the middle of the night. But why didn't they immediately recognize Jesus? I mean, they had spent days, months with him, and they had seen him do all kinds of miraculous things. They had seen him heal a paralyzed man. They'd seen him still a storm with a word. They had seen him raise a dead girl back to life, and they literally, hours before, had just seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. So why did they not recognize Jesus? Well, the same reason that we don't. When we're struggling, we think if any good person had the power to stop this, they would. Therefore, God either isn't good or he simply doesn't have enough power to fix my problems. At Hope, I hear this argument all the time whenever someone is in pain. It probably happens in my office at least once a week. And to be completely honest, when I'm in pain, I'm tempted to make it. If God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? More specifically, why does evil that impacts me and those I love exist? Right? One of my greatest struggles to believe the gospel is how God allows other Christians to treat me. When I get deeply wounded by another Christian, especially if it's kind of friendly fire, like they're biting the hand that feeds them when I'm trying to do them good, what do I do? Well, I find myself asking all these really hard questions. Why aren't my prayers for my children being answered? Why can't I find a lucrative job that I really love? Why does my spouse neglect me? Why are so many Christians so far apart politically, socially, and culturally? 
And then a little doubt start creeping in. Maybe God's not real. Maybe he's just a ghost. Maybe he's just a figment of our imagination. Maybe it's just our wishes projected onto eternity. Maybe we're alone in this storm, and it's all up to us. Well, why doesn't God quiet all the storms in our lives? The simple answer that God's word gives to that question is that our loving Heavenly Father, our good, good Father, finds them to be spiritually beneficial for us. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 puts it this way. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that they can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. See, the author of Hebrews is explaining to us that our good, good father is actually like the Coach K of spirituality, right? I saw a documentary on uh, some Duke players uh, during COVID. I've been watching different sports documentaries. And this one was interesting to me, but I think it might have been Bobby Hurley. I forget who was telling the story. But he said, I realized by my junior year, that Coach K's plan when we were at our first practice was to run us until every single athlete had thrown up in garbage cans he'd left around uh, the, the gym. And, uh, and I'm like, God, that sounds terrible, right? That sounds awful. But he was smiling as he said it. And, and I think the, the interviewer, I don't remember if he asked him about the smile or how it came up, but he basically said... What I realized by my senior year is that that was the plan on the first day of practice so that in the final game of the national championship, we could run that team off the floor, right? I'm going to discipline you. You're going to endure a storm of practices so that I can actually give you the deepest desires of your heart. That's what's going to happen here. You see, it turns out that God knows what you most deeply desire, but he also knows what you must experience in order to get what you most deeply desire. And the route to your best eternal life, says the word of God, is not the broad way of the easy life you're promised in the American dream. The route to your best eternal life is through the hard and narrow way of denying yourself and taking up your cross every day and sharing in Jesus' sufferings when you follow God into the storm of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, I can think of at least three ways that God uses storms to train me. The first is that storms reveal what's going on in my heart. There was a guy uh, named Sir William Davenant. I have no idea who this guy is, but I love this quote. He says, calamity 
is the perfect glass wherein we truly see and know ourselves. You see, storms tend to show you what you really believe. They knock you to your foundation. It's easy to believe that you are a person of great faith when things are going well. That was Satan's point to God in Job 1, 6-11, where we read this. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him and his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. You see, the, the message of God's word in the book of Job, which many scholars believe is the actual first book of the Bible that was ever written, is this, that God occasionally allows Satan to attack us through trials and tribulations because he loves us. And he's doing it to expose our true beliefs. Well, look at what this storm did to these disciples. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded, and Mark explains why, because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. See, these guys had come to Jesus excited about the fruit of their ministry and believing that they uh, were really filled with the Spirit and that God was doing great things with, with them, and they believed that their faith was like mountain-sized. But it just took one storm to explain to them what was really going on with them. Literally minutes before, God had taken care of their every need through feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, and now suddenly they find themselves angry and afraid because deep down they still don't trust God to look out for them. Their hearts are hard. The second thing that storms do for me is they expose the insufficiency of our idols. One of the things that the Bible reveals about us is that because we're needy and finite, we are designed to come into the world so that we have to rely on something other than ourselves to make life work. Um, one scholar says that we're born into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. Right? That's, that's what we're doing. That's what we celebrate on Mother's Day. Right? You're born, you're designed to come into the world looking for a face that is looking for your face. You're, you're made needy, but we hate it. And because we're also born sinful, we decide very early on how to need something other than God in order to make our life work. We come up with some sinful survival strategy where we take our needs and we attach them to a created thing instead of to the Creator. The name for that in the Bible is idolatry. 
And it, idolatry happens whenever we ask a created thing to be the source of our significance or our security or our comfort or our joy. And storms are great at exposing our idols because only the living God can stand up to a life of real pain. Idols always overpromise and underproduce. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He says, Affliction is able to drown out every earthly voice, but the voice of eternity within man it cannot drown out. When by the aid of affliction all irrelevant voices are brought to silence, it can be heard, this voice within. This is exactly what God explains to His people in Isaiah 1. He says this, The faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft. They all chase after bribes. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. They, the, and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all of your impurities. And so what God is explaining to his people is that he intentionally uses calamities to burn up our idols. And God can do that in our life today. He can use storms to come in and knock down any portion of our life that is built on the sand of idolatry. Now, he does this again because he loves us, because he wants to give us a chance to rebuild our eternal lives on the solid rock of God's written word. I'll never forget the transformation that took place in one of my friends at Hope. Um, when I first met him, um, he was kind of... Uh, a child who'd grown up very well off. And so he suffered from what Tim Keller calls affluenza, which means he was very fragile. Uh, he was full of anxieties. And he was quick to use uh, his resources and his talents to comfort himself, um, which had led to all kinds of like addictive behavior in his life. Um, and he was just constantly afraid. And the thing he was really afraid of is that um, he was going to lose all of his creature comforts, that he was going to lose the created things that he had come to rely on to make him feel significant and safe and uh, secure. And then his wife uh, got a brain tumor. And we would pray for her, uh, but there was nothing to stop it. And I wasn't sure what it was going to do to him. Um, I was afraid that it was going to uh, knock the legs out from under his faith and cause him to walk away. But instead, what God did with it was make him one of the most godly people I know. And I was talking about it with him years after his wife died, and I said, what happened to you? And he said this, he said, because of my upbringing, I used 
to be focused on my own comfort. And I was so focused on it that I was afraid of everything in life. He said, when my wife died, the thing I feared most in life happened to me. And my idol's ability to protect and comfort me wouldn't work. And so ironically, in taking my wife, God freed me from my addictions because they were not sufficient to the grief that I was bearing. And as a result, I met God in a new way. I experienced Him carrying me through the very thing I thought I could never survive, and it changed my life. He literally met Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death, and because He did, He stopped fearing evil. It was amazing to watch. Which brings us to the third reason that storms are so useful. They show us how strong God is. Verse 48, when he saw them straining at the oars because, of the, because the wind was against them, very early in the morning he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass them by. Now, can you imagine what this looked like? Here are the disciples in a boat, in a storm, straining at the oars. These are professional fishermen. They live on the water, and here comes Jesus walking by. No strain, no struggle, just strolling through the storm that had brought them to a complete halt, making much better time crossing the Sea of Galilee than they were on his own two feet. You see, our storms expose God's strength. Psalm 107 puts it this way, They saw the Lord's works, His wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish, they reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced. When the waves grew quiet, then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. <laughs> that sounds exactly like our passage, and the Lord, the Spirit, wrote that in the Psalms hundreds of years before this occurred. Look at how Jesus does that here. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were completely astounded. You see, Jesus was going to pass them by because the storm was doing something good for them. It was exposing their unbelief. But once they saw him and panic set in, he was moved by compassion. And he calmed them the same way that we calm our loved ones when they're having a nightmare. Notice that they didn't say, we know it's you, Jesus, but are you good? You see, it was a given that if it was Jesus, then he was good. They understood that Jesus loved them as soon as they realized that it was Jesus walking on the water instead of a ghost, their fears dissipated because they were certain that they were in good hands. You need to 
Christian, you need to remember this. You cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what you think you know about God. You must deduce everything you know about God from what you know about Jesus. He's the exact representation of God's being. He's God with skin on. But it's one thing to say that everything's going to be okay. It's another thing to actually have the power to make it so. So how do we know in our storms right now that Jesus has the authority to tell us that everything is going to be okay, that this isn't like a dad saying to his daughter on the Titanic that everything is going to be okay, to calm her as they go down with the ship. No, how can we know that his have courage, it is I, don't be afraid, is something that we can trust right now? Well, Jesus can tell us to take courage during storms Because God's word makes it very clear there's only one storm that really matters. The term storm is used several times in the Hebrew scriptures as a reference for the final day of God's judgment when he releases his justice on us as a consequence of our rebellion against him and our selfish harm of other people. In Jeremiah 23, we see it clearly beginning in verse 19. It says this, Look, A storm from the Lord. Wrath has gone out. A whirling storm. It will whirl about the heads of the wicked. The Lord's anger will not turn away until he has completely fulfilled the purposes of his heart. In time to come, you will understand it clearly. Jesus himself explained this in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, Don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God's word explains that there's really only one storm that matters when it's all said and done, and that's the storm that is the wages of our sin. The reason Jesus can tell us to take courage and not be afraid in the middle of whatever storm we're in is because he came to secure for us safe passage through the only storm that truly matters. And he did that when he endured the storm of God's wrath for us on the cross. Matthew 27, we read this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness fell over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. See, because Jesus endured the storm of God's wrath for us on the cross, all who look to him in faith to still that storm need never doubt his love, no matter what storms on earth we're going through right now. I love the way John Stott puts this. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Do you see what this means? Yes, we don't know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know the reason it isn't, what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down 
and get involved in it. That's the God that we serve. And so if you're here today and you feel that you are straining against the oars of your life, that you're terrified that this storm is going to be the one that does you in, you can take heart. There is someone here with the power and the goodness to tell you, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. If you're here today and you have never asked Jesus to come in and take over your life, then now's the time. Now is the time to take him into the boat of your heart and to let him still that guilt storm that is tearing you apart. If you're here today as a Christian, struggling against an earthly storm that Jesus has sent you into, take courage. He loves you and he is good. He has proved that by enduring the one storm that you couldn't possibly make it through to secure you safe passage into the very heart of God. Holly and I can testify to this. Even though this year has been the hardest of our lives so far, Jesus has brought us through. Our faith has been tested. Our idols keep getting exposed. Our God proves himself strong, and we're happy to still be in the boat with Jesus. And so whatever storm you're in, know this, it's being used by the God who loved you and gave himself for you on the cross. And when that storm has done its job, he will calm it with a thought. For as Mark said, he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were completely astounded. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to reveal to us the heart of God, that you died in the midst of the storm of God's wrath due our sins so that you could make a way for us into the heart of God and that you've promised to return and to one day wipe away every tear, still every storm, and to grant us the peace that surpasses our understanding that we might enter into the presence of your Father and know that we no longer need to be afraid. We pray that you would help us to believe that today in your name. Amen.